Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 136, Enlightenment 2.0. In this episode, we speak with artificial intelligence expert and Zen dabbler Ben Gertzel. We explore his history with Zen meditation, his work with artificial intelligence, and a fictional story he wrote about a sentient and enlightened AI who calls himself Aham, Sanskrit for I am. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today over the tubes with Ben Gertzel. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. It's a pleasure to have a chance to talk about something besides the nitty-gritty of the singularity in AI software, actually. Cool. Well, hopefully we'll overlap with that topic. But yeah, mostly we wanted to talk about Zen, how Zen relates to that topic, how your interest in Buddhism relates to that topic. And just a little background for those people who may not have heard of you, because you're pretty well known in certain circles, but I'd say in the Buddhist circles, probably most people don't know about your work. You're an American author and researcher in the field of artificial intelligence, and uh, you founded a company called Novamente that's working to develop a type of artificial general intelligence, which we'll get into more. And you're also the CEO of Biomind, a company that markets a software product based on some of the work that you've done. And finally, just to give you one more title, you're the director of research at the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence. So it sounds like you've got your hand in several different interesting uh, organizations that are working all on similar types of things. Is that true? Yeah, definitely. I mean, my my interest is in developing all sorts of advanced technology that can lead to new new forms of intelligence and make human life better. And I, I focused mainly on AI technology, both as an end in itself to create better minds and in applications, like applications to biomedicine. AI can apply to almost anything, which is both a, a strength and, and a weakness. So I've gotten my fingers in a lot of pots. And a mutual friend of ours, Mike Latora, who we've had on the show before, told me that you have a background in Zen meditation. And I was really surprised to hear that. I'd actually heard about your work through another friend who mentioned your book, The Hidden Pattern. And he was really a big fan of your writing. And so it kind of was a synchronistic to find out that you had a background in Zen meditation as well. But I don't really know much about that. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about how you got into Zen and how that's developed and maybe what your relationship is to Zen right now. Yeah, sure. I think it's something I don't talk about much. But I think my, my background in Zen and other wisdom traditions definitely colored my work on AI, my approach to un- understanding the mind. I got into Zen when I was probably 17 years old, when I was, a, I guess, a sophomore or a junior in, in college. And I, I was going to college in western Massachusetts at a college called Simon's Rock, which is a, like 300 really smart kids out in the middle of the woods. It's a very nice setting. And I, I discovered a book in the university library 
which was the Zen teachings of Wang Po. And I really enjoyed the book. I mean, this is very cryptic stuff from a Chinese Zen master from many hundreds of years ago. And that book inspired me to meditate. So I would frequently go out into the forest around Simon's Rock College and meditate. And, you know, doing it without a teacher uh, can have mixed results. But I, I got into some fairly interesting states of mind. The, the, the setting was, was really good. And unfortunately, I kind of drifted away from that when I left that place and moved to New York City for graduate school. New York wasn't as uh, meditative for me. Different sort of experience. I can imagine. Much later, maybe 10 years later than that, my wife at the time, who was my first wife, who had actually been in, in college with me, back when I'd been into Zen, but she hadn't really been into Zen at that time. She got deeply into Zen meditation. She had kind of Kensho experience where she was just overwhelmed with a feeling of, you know, oceanic oneness with the universe and peace and insight, which lasted like half a day and then lasted at a certain level for four or five months after that. And as a result of this sort of spontaneous experience, she got deeply into Zen. She began meditating a lot, and she ultimately became a Zen priest in the order of Su Yun. So through her, I got to know a lot of Zen practitioners and kind of became immersed in that world and began meditating off and on again, although I never felt inspired to join the uh, the Zen temple that she was in or anything. And we we got divorced six years ago, so I haven't really been involved with that world since then. But I felt my attitude was a bit more like that of Krishnamurti, who's someone else who I read a lot and was inspired by. I mean, he, he was very much a spiritual seeker, but he wound up preferring to avoid uh, institutions and organized groups, which is, is sort of the perspective I've come to. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective, because on, on the one hand, you mentioned that you can get mixed results without good guidance, but on the other hand, it uh, seems really clear to people who've been involved with spiritual institutions that there are all sorts of weird stuff going on, power dynamics and corruption and, and just all sorts of oddities. Well, you can get mixed results with or without guidance, I guess. Yeah, totally. I mean, I I would say the times that I meditated with with other people, particularly if there were experienced meditators around, and I did this when I, I briefly was involved with a Shambhala meditation group, maybe three or four years ago here in Maryland where I live, and I did find that I could get in like deeper, faster, and into different places when I was meditating in a room with a bunch of experienced meditators. So there, there is something there. It's different. I'm not sure it's profoundly and fundamentally better than what happens meditating on my own. But I, I would say there's, that there is something you get from that which is, uh, is special and which is apart from whatever power dynamics exist. So just to kind of lean more toward the work that you do professionally and that you spend a lot of time with this whole topic of uh, artificial intelligence. You 
as I understand, are taking approach to artificial intelligence, which is called artificial general intelligence. And you're actively, like you said, trying to develop what's called strong artificial intelligence. And I was wondering if you could say first, what is strong artificial intelligence? And then what is this whole artificial general intelligence, this approach that you're taking called AGI? Basically, by strong AI, what they mean is AI that can think pretty much like a person does. It understands who and what it is, and it can solve a huge variety of different problems and has human-type consciousness and reasoning and memory and thinking and perception, everything we think of as being part of an intelligent human mind. Whereas weak AI is thought of as being more like specific AI applications, just a smart chess program or a program that drives your car for you, a program that does your taxes for you, or that proves a math theorem or something. And really the, the distinction of AGI, general intelligence, versus narrow AI gets at the same thing as the strong versus weak AI dichotomy. I mean, there, there are technical distinctions when you get into the academic particulars of it, but from a, from a lay point of view, I guess those distinctions are, are kind of uh, hair-splitting. What we mean by AGI or general intelligence is an AI system that can confront a huge variety of problems in the same way that people can, including solving problems that didn't exist or weren't known at the time it was created. Like an AGI should be able to do like a person, go into a new environment, encounter a new set of problems, use its understanding of itself and the world to figure out what to do. Very interesting. And, and that's, of course, not the kind of AIs that we have now. So, I mean, there, there's brilliant AI inside video games. AI chess players can beat any human being at chess. Google is better at searching document bases than anything, right? But none of these have the kind of general problem-solving ability and self-understanding that people have. Interesting. And just as you're describing these different types of AI it occurs to me that most people that aren't really familiar with the field probably have the impression that we're really far away from what you're describing as a strong AI. And I'm wondering if that's true, because you're kind of at the forefront of developing this. How close are we to developing a strong artificial intelligence? And yeah. Well, opinions among the experts vary. I'd say the majority of card-carrying AI researchers probably believe it's at least a century away. On the other hand, there's a growing minority of AI researchers who believe it may just be a couple of decades away. Ray Kurzweil is perhaps the most outspoken of these. I mean, he, he's, he's not an academic, but he's an AI guy in industry who's made a lot of successful AI-based inventions. And he, he makes an argument that we'll have human-level AI by the year 2029. And I'm guessing I, I, you sit on the that side of the, the fence more the couple decades. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Ray Ray tries to pinpoint an exact year with more confidence than I would do. I I think it could happen within eight or ten years, or it might take thirty years. I don't think it'll take a hundred years. I think we're a lot closer than most people think. Why is that? Well, I think there's a number of technologies that are 
converging to cause this to happen. One is that computers are just getting more and more powerful. Everyone can see that. Like the laptop from five years ago is a piece of garbage or a museum piece now. And the computer power, processor speed, memory, networking speed is just accelerating exponentially. Another aspect is that we're understanding better and better how the brain works. I mean, brain imaging is also getting more and more accurate. We don't yet understand the essence of how the brain gives rise to human thought, but there, there seems little doubt that within a couple decades, we will, just based on more and more accurate brain imaging technology and better and better computers to do brain simulation. Cognitive psychology is advancing. I mean, we understand more and more about how the mind works separately from our knowledge of the brain. And then all this work on narrow AI, on specific AI problem-solving systems, is helping us develop a lot of powerful problem-solving algorithms, which will be useful for developing general AI systems, even though they don't constitute general AI in themselves. So I think we're, we're seeing the convergence of a lot of different factors that is going to lead to the emergence of advanced general intelligence and if if you don't try to take a broad view and look at all these different factors maybe you're not going to see it because none of these single things on its own is going to lead us to AGI cool thank you that's a very interesting explanation to kind of tie together these two questions one your background with contemplative practice and Zen meditation. And then on the other hand, all your work that you do with artificial intelligence, I wanted to ask you about this interesting article that you wrote a couple of years ago called Enlightenment 2.0. In this interesting story that you wrote, it's set in the 2030s and it's a discussion between this journalist and scientist with a, an artificial intelligence that I assume is what you're describing as AGI. Like it's a, something that's sufficiently intelligent that it that's becoming more and more intelligent it's kind of like it seems like a super intelligence in a way and this uh, AGI in the story kind of has its awakening like it kind of is born and then it goes through a process of helping humanity resolve certain levels of suffering like that was its main like its prime directive was to help alleviate human suffering so it, it create what in the story are called grails which I assume are some sort of nanotechnology that's able to produce unlimited amounts of food and energy and things like that. And then at some point, not too long after that, it kind of disconnects entirely from humanity and goes off to try to solve its own mental suffering and to try to kind of start looking at that level because it had already helped alleviate so much physical suffering. It seemed like, oh, that's the next step. And then what happens is really interesting. It comes back and it seems to have had some sort of awakening experience and I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about this story and some of the ideas you're wrestling with. I won't reveal the ending. You can if you want to, but it's a really fascinating ending because uh, this artificial intelligence, which refers to itself as aham, which is Sanskrit for I am, uh, ends up doing something you just wouldn't expect. Yeah, sure. I think the, the idea underlying that story really came out of some, some things I, I worry about in my personal life, just thinking about my own personal future. So w when I think about what would I want in the future if superhuman AI became possible? I mean, creating a superhuman AI, creating a better mind is pretty interesting. On the other hand, 
it's not me. It's just like creating some artwork or some robot that's separate from me. On the other hand, improving my own intelligence so as to become a better mind, to become a much broader, more benevolent, more understanding, more intelligent form of mind, that, that's pretty exciting to me. And I don't view that just as becoming smarter. I mean, I really think that the human brain architecture is is limiting so that I think if if you could change your brain into a different kind of information processing system, you could achieve just better states of mind. You could feel enlightened all the time while doing great science, while having sensory gratification, and it could be way beyond what humans can experience. So that leads to the question of, okay, if I had the ability to change myself into some profoundly better kind of mind, would I do it all at once? Would I just flick a switch and say, okay, change from Ben into a super mind? Well, I wouldn't really want to do that because that would be too much like killing Ben and just replacing him with the super mind. So I, I get the idea. Maybe I'd like to improve myself by, say, 20% per year. So I could enjoy the process and feel myself becoming more and more intelligent, more and more enlightened, broader and broader and better and better. That's a nice idea. To me, that would be an optimal outcome of me, my friends and family and everyone who wanted to could just kind of gradually ascend into a, a better way of being, say, by hooking your brain into some computer system or some more uh, functional intelligence infrastructure than, than the brain. Then, once you follow that line of thinking, you wonder if it's really possible. Could it be there's no way to continuously transition between what we are and this hypothetical uh, supermind, which would have a more profound and more consistently enlightened and super intelligent way of being. Maybe you just can't get there from here. Maybe that kind of mind is possible, but we can't transition smoothly into it. And you think of phase transitions in physics. You have water, and you boil the water, and then it changes from a liquid into a gas, just like that. It's not like it's half liquid and half gas, right? I mean, it's like the, the liquid is dead, and then there's a gas. And so that, that was the kind of theme underlying this story. There was this super intelligent AI that people had created, and the super intelligent AI, after it solved the petty little problems of world peace and hunger and uh, energy for everyone and so forth, that superhuman AI set itself thinking about, okay, how, how can we get rid of suffering? Fundamentally, I mean, how can we make a mind that really has a positive experience all the time and will spread good through the world rather than spreading suffering through the world? And then the conclusion it comes to is, it is possible to have such a mind, but human beings can never grow into that, and that it, given the way that it was constructed by humans, could never grow into that either. So the conclusion this AI comes to is, there probably are well-structured, benevolent superminds in the universe. And in order to be sure the universe is kept peaceful and happy for them, we should all get rid of ourselves because we're just fundamentally 
screwed up and can't even ever continuously evolve into something that's benevolently structured, which I, I don't really believe, but I think it's an interesting idea, and I, I wouldn't say it's impossible. I mean, it's really fascinating because at the end you're left wondering many things. Yeah, is, is, is the AI, for one thing, is the AI a lunatic or does it have some profound insight that we can't appreciate, which is, is a problem we're going to have broadly when we've created minds better than ourselves. I mean, just like when, when my dog wants to go do something and I stop him, right? I mean, maybe it's just because my motivational system is different than his. Like, I, I don't care about the same things as, as he does. I, I'm not that interested in going to romp in the field like he is. and I'm, I'm just bossing him around based on my boring motivational structure. On the other hand, sometimes I really have an insight he doesn't have, and I'm, I'm really right. He shouldn't go play on the highway, no matter how much fun it looks like. <laughs> the dog can't know, and similarly, when we have a superhuman AI, we really won't be able to know. I mean, we'll have to make a kind of gut-feel decision whether to trust it or not. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.